If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John 16. We're going to look at verses 25 to 33. And by the way, our evangelistic outreach yesterday, which was our first one, I would say it was a success. It was cold, yes, very cold, very windy, cold, but praise God he met us there. And listen, we're never called to save people. We're called to proclaim the gospel, and that's what we did. We gave out tracks, we, we had a little table filled with snacks, and we gave out the snacks. Uh, Chris, would you mind just lowering the volume just a slight bit? And we did what we believe God wanted us to do, is to share Christ with a lost and dying neighborhood, Bay Ridge. Anyway, if you have your Bible, turn to John 16. We're going to go through verses 25 to 33. This is the last section in John's Gospel where Jesus is concluding his discourse with his disciples. Now, you have to understand, and I want to give you a picture. He's in the upper room, right before his death. I mean, hours before his death, and he's pouring his life out into his disciples. He's not so much concerned about himself that he's going to have his hands pierced with nails and a crown of thorns on his head. He's going to be slapped around, spit upon, nails to his feet, and he's going to suffer and die. What is Christ concerned about? He's concerned about his disciples. So this is hours before he's dying, and it's, it's right before chapter 17. You know what chapter 17 is? This is the great high priestly prayer where Jesus pours his heart out to the Father. Concerning his glorification and his disciples. Right before his death. I'm going to give you a little synopsis. Or a little, in a nutshell, outline of the Gospel of John. We went through um, chapters 1 through 12. Although we didn't do chapter 1 yet. I'm going to save that to the very end. We went through chapters 2 through 12, which centers on the rejection of Jesus by the nation of Israel. You see, John's gospel is basically centered around seven signs or seven miracles. For example, the feeding of the 5,000, uh, the wedding at Cana, so on and so forth. There were seven. Most of the nation of Israel rejected Jesus Christ. And then when you get to chapter 13... Through 16, it focuses on those who did receive him. That was his disciples. And what you and I read in chapters 13 through 16 is Jesus communicating, as one commentator said, his coming legacy to his followers. In other words, this is what Jesus promised his disciples and all who would believe. He promised them, and you could read this in the chapters 13 through 16. He promised them and he assured them of the hope of heaven... He promised them powerful ministry. He promised them to provide for their needs. He promised them the Holy Spirit. He promised them divine truth from the Word of God. He also uh, promised to them peace and joy. And the thing that tied all of this together was his steadfast love for them. Then you get to chapter 17, and that centers on Jesus' high priestly prayer. And then chapter 18 through 21... The concluding chapters centers on the arrest, trial, crucifixion, resurrection, and post-resurrection of Christ. 
And that's the basic outline of John. And the, of course, the main theme or the main purpose of the book is found in John chapter 20, verse, uh, verse 31, where John says the reason for the book, the reason why he wrote the Gospel of John, was so that you may believe in the name of the Son of God and have eternal life in his name. Now, his crucifixion would prove his love for them, but also reconcile them back to the Father. They would now know God, and more importantly, be known by God. It's one thing to know God, it's another thing to be known by God. And these promises were not only for his disciples, back in the upper room, before his crucifixion, but for all believers. That means it's for you and me today. And all this was made possible because Christ overcame the world by his atoning work on the cross. Let's turn to John chapter 16, verses 25 to 33. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name... And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figures of speech, or figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this timely word. We thank you that it's your eternal word. We pray that God, as we hear your word, that you would open up our hearts to receive your word and change our lives so we can become more like your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So, we have this big, huge tree in front of our house. And covering most of the tree is these vines of ivy. If if any of you have ever been to our house, you've seen this huge tree and this ivy growing up the tree. (laughs) And covering most of that tree is the ivy. A few years back, I cut the base of the ivy. I didn't want the ivy crawling up the tree. And it dried up. And I was able to pull it down. You, you, once it dries up, it's so easy to pull off. You, know, you pull it down. And I wrapped it up and threw it out. <clears throat> well, I received a lot of flack from my next door neighbor, who's here today, but I won't mention her name. <laughs> and then my wife, of course, had to chime in. And both of them coerced me into letting it grow back. And when, I, and when it started to grow back... There was these little tiny shoots that started to make their way up the tree trunk. And one would think as they looked at these little tiny shoots, this could never fill the tree. Little by little, these shoots 
turned into ivy. In a couple of years, they overcame the tree. And now if you see it, the, the whole trunk and a lot of the branches of the tree are just overcome with this ivy. When Jesus was going to the cross, it certainly looked like the devil and his world would be victorious. Jesus died and was put into a tomb. We won, they thought. We finally overcame this Jesus, this troubler of Israel. And for three days, they rejoiced. The Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, and most of Israel rejoiced at the death of Jesus. But on the third day, that early Sunday morning, something happened. The stone was rolled away and Jesus was gone. He rose from the dead. Death could not hold him. The devil and the world had no hold on Jesus Christ. He overcame the world, the devil, and the flesh. Jesus was like one of those little tiny shoots at the base of my tree. Unimpressive. But those tiny shoots overcame the tree with much ivy. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 tells us, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Assyria, a world power, was responsible for the exile of the ten northern tribes of Israel, and was eventually conquered by Babylon. And they were to be cut down to a tree, like a tree, to its stump at the height of its power, never to rise again. Judah, the southern kingdom, where King David was from, and through his line would come the Messiah, was also cut down like a tree to the stump. However, unlike Assyria, where King David was from, and through his line would come the Messiah, unlike Assyria, they would have a little shoot that would begin to grow and bear fruit. In other words, God chopped down Assyria the empire, and Judah. Why did he do both? Why Judah? Judah were, were the people of God. Because they were just as sinful, if not more sinful, than Assyria. But despite the judgment of Judah, because of their sin, God, because of his covenant to Abraham and David, was going to raise up a new leader through Jesse's family tree. Jesse was the father of David, by the way. And Judah, in the eyes of the world, was reduced to a stump-like size. And out of that stump would come forth a fragile shoot, which ultimately would grow and bear much fruit. That new shoot was Jesus Christ. Just like the small little shoots that began to grow at the base of my tree, and eventually the shoots grew into ivy that overcame my tree. Jesus Christ, the small shoot, grew and overcame the world through his death and resurrection. And you and I don't ever have to despair. If you're a Christian, if you're born again, if you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, you do not have to despair when we're going through tribulations in this world because we have the life of Christ in us who overcame the world. So here's my proposition to you tonight. Rejoice, Jesus overcame the world. Three points I want to give you tonight. 
They say a sermon should have at least three points. Okay, so I'm going to give you three points. Once in a while, I'll give you four. Point one. Jesus revealed the Father to you. Point two. Jesus gives you a relationship with his Father. He didn't only reveal the Father to you. He gives you a relationship with the Father. And point three. Jesus gives you peace and victory. Let's go to point one. Jesus gives you peace and victory. Let's read verses 25 to 31 again. I want you to get the hang of this. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah... Now you are speaking plainly and not using figures of speech. Now we know you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered him, do you now believe? So up to this point, Jesus spoke to his disciples enigmatically. In other words, he spoke to them figuratively. With the implication that these figures of speech weren't easy to understand. The Greek word for figures of speech is paramia. And it means relatively short narrative uh, with symbolic meaning. It can mean a parable. It can mean an allegory. Jesus uses paramoia here more in the sense of obscure speech that needs interpretation. And that's why his disciples didn't always understand him because he spoke to them figuratively with obscure speech. To the Jew, Jew, Jesus spoke in parables. Why? Because of their unbelieving hearts. And so the truth was actually hidden from them. Even his disciples at times did not understand when Jesus spoke in parables. And they had to ask Jesus to explain it to them so they could grasp it. That's when, whenever Jesus spoke in parables, they would come to him. Hey, Jesus, you know, would you mind explaining this to me? Because we don't understand. And Jesus graciously loved his own and would explain it to them. But there was coming a day when he would speak to them clearly and plainly about the Father. He was going to reveal the Father to them. At this point, they didn't have the great understanding of the Father. And that was the day after the resurrection, when the coming of the Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost, that the figures of speech that they couldn't grasp would finally be made clear. I like what Dr. Warren Wesley says. He says, Jesus explained that there would be a new situation because of his resurrection and ascension. And because of the coming of the Holy Spirit, he would no longer speak to them in terms that demanded spiritual insight for their understanding. He would speak to them plainly and reveal the Father to them. There in the upper room, he had used a number of symbolic images to get his message across. The washing of their feet, the the Father's house, the vine and the branches, and the birth of a baby... In the days that followed, these images would become clearer to the disciples as they would be taught by the Spirit of God. And I would have to agree with Dr. Wearsby because Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, 26, 
He says, but the help of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, you and I, as followers of Christ, have a clearer understanding of Jesus' teaching than the disciples did when they were with Jesus. You know why? Because you have the Holy Spirit. At that point, they did not have the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was crucified, resurrected back to life, and he sent his Holy Spirit into our hearts. So we have a a much, much better understanding than they did. The disciples could not understand the the Father or the depth of his love until they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And that happened at the day of Pentecost. They had a tough time understanding the relationship between the Father and the Son. Remember Philip said to Jesus in John 14, verses 8 and 9, he said, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus so patiently says, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? There was a day coming for the disciples that they would understand the father and the son's relationship. Even though they didn't understand much of what Jesus was teaching them, Jesus still chose them and one day would reveal to them all that they needed to know about the father and his kingdom. He will speak to them plainly about the father. And as you're reading this text, one would think they're beginning to understand, right? In verse 29 and 30 where they said, Ah, now Jesus, you're speaking plainly and not using figures of speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And how does Jesus answer them? Do you now believe? Now, what was the tone of of how Jesus said, Do you now believe? We don't know because we weren't there. One thing... We have a disadvantage of when we read the word of God. We don't know the tone of how Jesus or one of the writers would say something. But many scholars believe it wasn't a very confident tone. And I like what Dr. Sproul says. He says, Jesus' response to this outburst was one of righteous indignation. It was almost as if Jesus was saying, oh, now you believe? Where have you been for the last three years? Where were you when I told you that the Son of Man had to go forth and to die? Did they really believe? Or did they have a shallow belief? That's the question you and I need to ask ourselves. Do we really believe everything Jesus said in his word? Now before you say, oh yes, without a doubt. Genuine belief is life transformation. It transforms your life. Make no mistake about it. Genuine belief in what Jesus said will produce joy. It will produce peace, answered prayer, and assurance of the Father's love for you. And I think, I think Jesus knew his disciples were sincere. But their new level of trust We now know you're speaking without figures of speech. Their new level of trust was still very weak. Why do I think that? Look at the very next verse. Because the very next verse he says they were going to forsake him and leave him alone. What kind of trust is that? And that's exactly 
what they did, wasn't it? And although they left Jesus alone, was he really alone? He was not really alone. Jesus made that clear in John 8, 29, where he said, All and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. The only time Jesus was forsaken is when he became the sin bearer on the cross. And he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen, the disciples may have begun to understand Jesus at that point, but were still a long way off to rock-solid faith. Rock-solid faith was going to happen on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit would fill them, and they would now be willing to lose their lives for the gospel and Jesus Christ. When Jesus was arrested, they fled. The day of Pentecost, and now they're ready to lose their lives for the gospel. Also on that day of Pentecost, they would have a much greater revelation of the Father. When Christ died and was resurrected, Jesus' Father was now their Father. And he's, after Jesus was re- resurrected, he said in John chapter 20, verse 17, he said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. It was then that the disciples really began to understand plainly and clearly about the Father and the Son and the Kingdom as the Spirit taught them. When I first started playing drums, I was like around 14 years old, I was only able to play by ear what I heard. Then a good friend of mine who was in the band I was playing with suggested lessons. And I, I took his suggestion And I found the teacher and started lessons. The first lesson, when I looked at the book he was teaching me from, looked like black dots. I mean, I I couldn't make heads or tail out of it. I didn't know how to read it. And then he started to teach and explain and demonstrate. And it became clearer and clearer. And I began to see it plainly. You know, John, here's quarter notes. One, two, three, four. Here's eighth notes. One and two and three and four. And, and, and as, I was, as he was explaining it to me and demonstrating it to me, I was able to understand and see it clearly. Now, I, I, I don't know nearly as much as some other drummers who can sight read charts with excellence, like our good friend Andy. <laughs> but even they can learn more. And it wasn't until the teacher taught me Uh, was I then able to read and play. The Holy Spirit is your teacher. And Christ, through His Spirit, will teach you, especially as you read His Word, all you need to know about your Heavenly Father and the Kingdom of God. Now, there are times in your life, as a believer, when you read the Word of God, and it's still not plain. It seems like God is still speaking to you in parables. And first I want to say, that you and I will never arrive at that perfect understanding of God in this life. In your present state, even with scriptures, even with the Holy Spirit filling your heart, many things are just not plain. Paul told the Corinthian church, now we see in a mirror dimly. We only know in part. But when we see him face to face, we will see things clearly and plainly. You will also have perfect 
intimacy with the Father and the Son. Until then, you're going to see clearer than the apostles saw at before Pentecost, but not perfectly clear. In the meantime, the Spirit will instruct you more and more in the mysteries and the secrets of your salvation until He returns. You will also grow in your understanding of the Father's perfect love for you. You're going to grow in the understanding of the Father's character on who He is because Jesus reveals that to you. The second person of the Trinity can do that because He is one with the Father in nature and essence. Remember when Jesus said to Philip, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is not the Father, but has the same fatherly characteristics towards us. That is why Isaiah calls the Messiah, he's the everlasting Father. And that's why Hebrews says, he is the exact imprint of the Father. The exact representation of the Father. So Jesus, through the Spirit, teaches us the Father's character. Not only does Jesus reveal the Father to you, point one. Point two is Jesus gives you a relationship with the Father. It's one thing to know the Father. But it's another thing to be in a relationship with Him. When I first met my wife, I knew her. But as I get to know her, we began to have a relationship. We don't want to just know the Father. Jesus will reveal that to us. But he's going to put you in relationship with him. Verse 26, 28. In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say that that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me. And have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world. And going to the Father. By the way, this is what separates all the religions of the world from true Christianity. A deep, intimate relationship with the God of the universe. Islam doesn't have that. Hinduism doesn't have that. Buddhism doesn't even have a God, really. Confucianism doesn't have that. No religion has that. Only true Christianity puts you in a deep relationship with the Father, with the God of the universe. Now, I don't know about you, but that blows my mind that the God of the universe would love me and give me a relationship with himself. In that day when the work of Christ was completed and the Holy Spirit was sent, it was no longer Jesus and his disciples. But Jesus, the disciples, and now his heavenly father. The father is now accessible. Now there is a new cycle of fellowship, as Dr. Gary Berg says. And now the disciples can ask the father anything in Christ's name. You can ask the father anything in Jesus' name. And sometimes I think we don't get it. We just don't get it. You you and I can approach the God of this universe, the one who created all things, the famous one, and ask him for anything according to his will. Anything according to his will. No, I'm not saying we should ask the God God of the universe for a Mercedes or a Bentley or, or, or a mansion. 
I'm saying to ask the Father what Jesus would want. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. We ask because of what Jesus did on the cross, His merits, not ours. We don't go to the Father in our own merits. We go on the merits of Jesus Christ, on the work of Jesus Christ. And then we ask according to His will, and that according to His will is to ask what Jesus would ask. It's not a magic formula to pray in Jesus' name as so many have made it today. Or just pray in Jesus. But they don't understand the concept of praying in Jesus' name. It's praying on the basis of all that Jesus is and has done for our salvation. And that's why you and I can go directly to the throne of grace. As the writer of Hebrews says, boldly. Not timidly. Boldly. You go and say, Abba, Father, I need this. And I come to you on the basis of what your son did. And this doesn't mean Jesus ceases to be our intercessor or advocate. Just because now we can go directly to the Father, he's still your intercessor and he's still your advocate. And there's no contradiction here. Dr. Leon Morris, the the great Australian uh, theologian, says there's no contradiction with passages that speak of his perpetual intercession for his people, nor with that in which John calls him an advocate with the Father. There is one basic underlying, underlying thought, namely that our approach to the Father rests firmly on Christ's priestly work for us. That work is itself a perpetual intercession. So anytime you go to the Father with your request, Christ's work is still interceding for you. It's amazing. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He's constantly interceding for you and me. And to add to this unbelievable idea that he is your heavenly Abba Father, and can ask Him anything, it's because the Father loves you. The God of the universe loves you. By the way, the Father didn't need the prompting from the Son in order to love you. Because it was the Father's love for you who sent His Son in the first place. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. But also, verse 27 tells us that the Father loves you because you love Jesus. His Son. You love His Son. He loves you. Verse 5, uh, John, verse 5, 23 tells us that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent them. So it is impossible to say, I love God. And fail to honor and obey his son, Jesus Christ. Did you know that? And a lot of religions, Islam is one. They acknowledge Jesus, but they don't honor him as the son of God. So if you're not honoring Christ the way the father wants you to honor him, the father will not honor you. The father and the son are one. And are equal in nature, works, power, sovereignty, and judgment. So it stands to reason that they deserve equal honor and love. 
All the religions of the world say they honor and love God, but they reject the idea of the Son of God. And once again, that also separates true Christianity from all the religions of the world. And because they reject the Son, even though they don't think so, they reject God. But God loves those who love His Son. Now, I am compelled to stop here and explain this idea that the Father loves you because you love His Son. This is where biblical context comes in. Reading verse 27 can sound like the only reason God loves you is why? Because you love His Son, Jesus. That would sound like you initiated love first and then God showered you with His divine love, right? I mean, as... as If you read that, that's what it sounds like, which would be a work. You love my son, so now I love you. But that is so far from the truth of what the Bible teaches. It is crystal clear that God loved you first. As a matter of fact, he loved you from all eternity. Before you were born, he set his love in your heart. From all eternity, before the foundations of the world were laid, he loved you. First, John 4.19. John tells them, his, his hearers, we love because what? He first loved us. First John 4.10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were shaking our fist in hatred towards God, Christ died for us. Who initiated the love? It was God the Father. He initiated his love for you. And he poured out his love into your hearts, as Romans 5.8 tells us. And because he loved you and filled your heart with his love and called you and saved you, you now in turn love his son. And so the father loves you because you love his son, which was the result of God loving you. See that beautiful cycle? That's why the father loves you because you love his son. Because it was the father who poured his love into your heart that you can love the son. And not only does the Father love you because you love His Son, but also because you believe that Jesus Christ came from God. You love Christ, you believe He came from God, now you have the heart of God. Dr. Bruce Milne, quoting John Calvin, says this. He says, Calvin aptly comments, we have the heart of God as soon as we place before Him the name of His Son. When you love his son, that pleases the father so much. That's the only thing that pleases the father. Faith in the son of God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith in what? Faith in the son of God. Not just faith. Faith in his son. When you believe in his son and you follow his son, that is like a sweet smelling aroma in the nostrils of God the father. And he loves that and he's pleased with that. And that's why we exalt Christ in our worship. We exalt Christ in the preaching of the word. We exalt Christ in our fellowship. We exalt Christ in our prayers. 
and I have three children, Rihanna, John Paul, who is here, and Allison. We also have a son-in-law, Chris, who we love as our own son. And next to Christ, and then Kim, and Kim for me, they are the apple of our eyes. They are. If you hurt them in any way, or dishonor them in any way, you are hurting and, and dishonoring me and Kim. I mean, that's just the bottom line. And for those of you who are parents, know what I'm talking about. It's like taking a pin when you dishonor our children or try to hurt them and pricking our eyes with it. That's what it's like. But if you honor and treat them with respect, you honor and respect us. And we will be honored and do anything you ask, within reason, of course. I was reading these quotes about if you hurt someone's child, and they were very interesting, and I... And represent most parents. And I want to read three of them to you. First one says, hurt me, shame on you. Hurt my child and you better hope I don't find you. (laughs) Second one, mess with my kids. I will see your name is chiseled in stone. The third one, this one I love. Don't be fooled by my pretty face. Mess with my kids and I will go 50 shades of crazy on you. That's the attitude of most parents. And rightfully so. Now as Christians, of course, we don't take vengeance. Vengeance is mine. Says the Lord, I will repay. But if we hurt someone's child, don't expect favor from that parent unless you honor and respect their children. How much more does God feel about those who love and honor Christ and all who are in Christ? And be careful. I want everybody to hear this. Look here. Be careful the way you treat a fellow believer. You are touching the apple of God's eye. The same principle applies to believers because we are now sons and daughters of God through Christ. If you hurt and hate a believer, you know what? You hurt and hate God. Don't say, I love God and I hate my brother. Don't say, I can't forgive my brother or sister and then expect favor from God. If you hate and hurt a believer, you're hating and hurting God. If you honor and love a believer, guess what? The opposite is true. You honor and love God. Christianity is relational, isn't it? Point one, Jesus revealed the Father to you. Point two, Jesus gives you a relationship with his Father. Point three, Jesus gives you peace and victory. How? Through tribulation? Yeah. And because Jesus overcame the world. He gives you peace and victory even through times of tribulation, even through the tough times in life. Because Christ overcame the world. 32 and 33. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus was giving his disciples comfort and encouragement before, right before his arrest. 
Jesus has already revealed to his disciples at this point that peace and joy belong to them. But these must be understood in light of tribulation they would encounter. I mean, it's possible to have peace and joy in the midst of all the hardships. When they would place their faith and trust in God and be assured of his love for them, in spite of hardships, they were going to encounter from this world peace and joy would be theirs. In spite of the the hardships they were going to encounter from the world. And I find it astounding that Jesus was telling them, you guys are going to desert me. And in the very same conversation he says, I'm going to give you my peace. What religion talks like this? Tell me, can someone tell me? Can you look through the Quran and find something like this that is so wonderful? You're going to desert me. I'm going to give you my peace. Dr. Leon Morris, again, he says, but he predicted their desertion in the very saying in which he assured them of, their, of, of the peace he would give them. He loved them for what, they were, from what, for what they were and despite their shortcomings. When in the future they looked back on their desertion, they could reflect that Jesus had predicted it. And in full knowledge that they would act in this way, he had promised them peace. And he tells them, take heart. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Now the Greek, which is in the imperative mood, imperative means that it's command. When you read uh, the Greek word for take heart, it's a command. He's not saying, making a suggestion, take heart. He's saying, take heart. Take heart. In other words, Jesus commanded them, take heart, take courage, cheer up. You don't have to despair. And even though they were going to through continual tribulation, not just tribulation at one time. This is talking about a continual tribulation. They need not fret. They were going to go through this tribulation, which is a hardship. It involves direct suffering. It's unavoidable. Tribulation for the Christian, by the way, is unavoidable. But they were to take heart. They were to take courage. They were to be cheerful because their Christ overcame the world. What does Jesus mean? I've overcome the world. Another Greek word. You guys are going to become Greek scholars today. Nikeo. Nikeo. And it means win a victory. To be victorious over. To be a victor. To conquer. Victory. It's where we get the name for Nike sneaker. Or Nike sportswear. It means... They get the word from uh, uh, mythology, Greek mythology, which means uh, the goddess of victory. I remember hearing or, or, or reading somewhere where it also means over, over conqueror. The disciples were to be courageous in a hostile envi- environment because Jesus conquered death, sin, and Satan. They were going to be overcomers. The victory was theirs because, why? Because Christ gained it for them. He gained it for you. These 11 frail men who exhibited fear and fled when Jesus was arrested now had peace and became courageous followers of Christ. 
One minute they're fleeing. The next minute they're willing to die for Jesus Christ. One commentator said, the peace and hope that characterized them is the same that has characterized, that has characterized true believers in every age. You see, Jesus looked beyond their failure and looked to their restoration in him. Who possesses this victory? Every single Christian. Make no mistake about that. 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5. John talking to Christians again. For everyone who has been born of God, what? Overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You honor the Son? You honor the Father. Christ's victorious spirit comes within you. 1 John 4.4 John speaking to Christians again. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Every person lives in this world and and we, we all, believer or unbeliever, have some level of trouble and suffering. But only those in Jesus Christ have divine peace in the midst of trouble because we're overcomers in Christ. Always remember, it's in Christ. Do you ever read Paul's letters? It's always in Christ. You're in Christ. This is not about John in John. This is not about John's strength. This is about John in Christ and having Christ's strength in his heart. When Jesus overcame the world, it outweighed everything or anything that you can go through. You're an overcomer. You're a conqueror. Listen to what Dr. Gary Berg says. If his victory in his life can become a victory we enjoy, victory extended to us when we embrace him in faith, then his triumph can become our triumph. I'd like to read to you an article from Voice of the Martyr magazine, which I think makes the point that as believers, we can have peace and joy during tribulation because Christ overcame the world. Listen to this article I read. Walter was a new Christian, and he was scared. Most people in his village thought anyone who left Hinduism was rejecting Indian culture. So Christians were highly criticized by their neighbors. Although Walter was reluctant to talk about his faith, he admired his pastor's boldness. Eventually, he decided to visit a neighboring village with Pastor Joseph. When a Hindu family asked him to pray for him, for a a sick family member, they gladly entered their home. But when they walked back out, about 50 men were waiting for them. The mob began to beat them and smash their vehicle with sticks. They looted their vehicle and dragged the Christians to the police station where they were thrown in jail. Pastor Joseph lost four teeth in the beating, and Walter was covered with bruises. But the pastor was undeterred. As he crouched on the dirt floor of the the jail cell, still aching from the beating, he couldn't stop talking about Jesus with other prisoners in the cell. Walter watched as three of his cellmates gave their lives to Christ. Suddenly, something inside him overflowed. He turned to the prisoner slumped beside him. Do you know that Jesus loves you? He began. The man responded with interest. And after several hours of conversation, 
He too became a Christian. Walter and Pastor Joseph are released after three days. Today, fully aware of the potential for more beatings and jail time, Walter continues to share Jesus with everyone he meets. God used an arrest and a beating to embolden Walter's faith. Now, I know this is extreme, but the point is this. It is possible to overcome anything with peace and joy because Jesus overcame the world. So if you're in Christ, you have that victorious power in you. Let me conclude here. It's amazing that we have sinned against the creator of the universe and he sent Jesus to die for us. And because of his death, number one, he revealed the Father to you. Number two, you are in relationship not only with the Son, but with the Father as well. And number three, you have peace and joy, even through tribulation, because Christ gave you the victory because he overcame the world. Now, victory for the Christian doesn't mean... We're shielded from tribulation, suffering, suffering, trials, pain in this life. It doesn't mean that. It means we are in God's care. And through the pain and hardships, we have the peace of Christ. Let me conclude reading a chorus from an old hymn written by Eugene Bollett in 1939. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have the victory in Christ. That he has overcome the devil, the world, and sin. We don't have to fret anymore. That even when we're going through hard times, our trust is in the risen Savior. And we are more than conquerors. We're overcomers in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.